Today on CityCast DC, we are going to be a little bit transportation heavy today. We're also going to be a little bit transportation nerd heavy today because Dan Reed and Martin Ostermuller are here to chat with me about what's going on with those 7,000 series trains. We're also going to talk about parking, everyone's favorite subject. Today is Friday, October 28th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, so bigger picture story. We've got this seemingly bureaucratic thing, which is that the Washington Metro Rail Safety Commission has said it's okay to put something called the 7000 series metro train back on the rails. But this actually uh, has a really big import because the 7000 series trains, which were the newest, sexiest metro trains and had been yanked for safety reasons last year, have been, number one, a symbol of the dysfunction within the metro system. And two, the lack of these trains has been cited as a reason for, for the system not being able to open its extension to Dulles Airport, which was supposed to really change things. So now it turns out the 7000 series trains are going to be back and Metro will reach Dulles in time for Thanksgiving, which is really exciting news. Is it not, you guys? It is very exciting for anyone who's had to ride Metro over the past couple of months. It's been super frustrating because trains have been coming much more infrequently as there have been fewer trains in service. So not only does this mean you'll have the nice, shiny 7000 trains to ride again, but it simply means more trains. So you won't have to wait as long at the platform. You know, the symbolism of this right over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, we've had these sort of twin stories where one, there's been this story of like just dysfunction on things that are sort of basics like safety. And this causes a lack of public confidence, scariness, et cetera, et cetera. The kind of other thing that doesn't get talked about as much is like, does the system go anywhere? Like I'm thinking, you know, even with the cars back and let's just assume that safety is now paramount and everything is fantastic. Uh, I have a hard time imagining a situation where I trust Metro to get me and my family to the airport at the kind of times we would fly, which is typically going to be like taking advantage of a weekend. So leaving early, maybe on a Saturday, I have two children, so a family of four. Um, I hate the way I feel when I'm worried about missing a plane. I probably would pay a premium to avoid that feeling. No, that's pretty fair. I think a lot of folks in the region may still feel the same about how to get to Dulles as they did before the Silver Line opens. It's far. Dulles is far for most of us. <laughs> yeah. But I think for folks living in Virginia, I imagine that may be a core group of folks who are going to ride the train to Dulles. For me, you know, I live on the red line, so it's, it's two trains and you have to switch downtown. So in the rare off chance that I find myself going to Dulles, I might still ask my dad for a ride, as I do. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad is not a metro driver, right, Dan? Uh, famously, no. I don't know. It's like I believe in transit, and I think transit should reach big things like airports and train stations and so on, stadiums. But is it going to be weird or considered sort of a black mark or something if these trains roll and, in general, they're pretty empty? It's going to take time You know, when the line opens for people to start incorporating it into their daily habits. You know, we've seen that with the first segment of the Silver Line, which 
it's only been open for seven or eight years now. And the real marker of success for me is not necessarily if people are going to take the Silver Line to the airport, but if people at all the other stops like Ashburn and, and so forth will you start using Metro for regular trips to do other things like to work or to go shopping in Tyson's Corner or so forth. It also seems to me like Metro's been, I don't know, like hit with these other revolutions, right? Metro was built to get people from suburbs to downtown jobs and back. That was the idea in the 60s. And that's how they talked about it. They didn't think of it as other things. They certainly didn't think of it as a way you were going to go out to go shopping or go out to dinner or something like that. And it was kind of nudged in that direction. And as DC evolved, it became easier that way. One of the things that sort of under discussed, I think, but that has had an effect on Metro is the rise of car shares. It just introduced a different, obviously much more expensive uh, option for people going out. And, you know, this thing happens, it's soft infrastructure, it doesn't require digging new tunnels or anything like that, but it does sort of change people's equation. And it's a strange sort of asymmetric competition where Metro can plan for years, we're going to get to the airport, but history has a way of throwing curveballs like global pandemics and the rise of car share services that are going to, in real time, change people's decision-making equation. Well, this is why I'm kind of curious. I would love to revisit this 10 years from now, so we should put a pin in this, like a decade from now, let's have the same conversation, because I think that's going to be an interesting reflection point will the silver line have proven to be just a complete fiasco and just a waste of money and no one is using it? And what were we thinking when we decided to build it and look how long it took and look at all the issues that came up with it? Or is it going to prove to be one of those investments that we look back on and say, oh my God, that was brilliant. Just when they started building the silver line, you look at the construction along the stations that first opened. I mean, Reston, some of the new buildings there are amazing. And the developers clearly believe that there was something there with the silver line reaching those new places. Now, do they jump ahead of themselves? Were they basing their decisions on information from back then, not considering a pandemic was going to come in into play or that car sharing and all these other options were going to be a factor? I think that's the big question mark. And that's the thing I would want to look back on at some point. Mike, I agree with you, though, on the issue of getting to Dulles. I mean, I love that the train will now go to Dulles. Will I ever use it? I have no idea. I mean, I think the cardinal sin of this region was putting Dulles as far out as it was. If it was like 15 miles closer Getting a train out there would make perfect sense. It's still going to take an hour on the metro, though. So I'm on your side. Like, I don't know that I'll use it for that, but I will give it a little bit of kind of space to develop and see what comes of the Silver Line. I don't want to condemn it just yet. And it could be that that metro to Dallas, maybe it ain't for us, you know, for people living in residential parts of Washington. Maybe it's aimed more at out-of-town visitors and others. And again, it's, you know, it's cool. You go to it when you go to a different city and you have no idea where you are, the notion that you can get on a, a train and there's a map and it, <laughs> it shows you where it's going is very reassuring and it's a good and civilized thing. So again, it may not be for us. But so if you're not taking the metro, there's a fairly good chance you are a car owner. And if you're a car owner in DC, there's a fairly good chance that you have an outsized and passionate feeling about neighborhood parking. This is a system that is potentially a scam where you, as a resident of a neighborhood, get a sticker that says, uh, I am in this zone. And most of the parking on streets in Washington is two hours unless you've got the zone sticker for that zone. So people get very concerned when they get rezoned. And this has become a, a big and heated deal. Martin, can you explain this a little bit to people? Yeah, this is the big sleeper issue of the year. Trust me on this one. This is going to blow everything out of the water. 
I'm mostly kidding. But yeah, in DC, we have residential parking permits. Like you said, they're linked to the ward that you live in. So I live in Ward 5. That means I have parking privileges across the entirety of Ward 5. Um, There's eight wards in the city. So again, linked to, to where you live. Now, there's every now and again, there's discussions about whether this is the smartest way to approach parking, mostly because for certain people, let's say you live in the outer reaches of Ward 3, kind of residential sur- suburban part of D.C., you can drive your car all the way down to Woodley Park, the Woodley Park Metro Station, park your car there for the entire day, jump on the metro and go to work. Now, that works wonderfully for some people. For other people, it's a point of concern. It's a point of contention because it means you have essentially out of the neighborhood folks parking on your residential street so they can jump on the metro to go downtown. So there's been proposals floated and there's a bill in the D.C. Council that would shrink the size of those parking zones so that it's not based on your ward, but rather based on your advisory neighborhood commission, which is a smaller kind of boundary, which would basically mean you get those parking privileges in your neighborhood, around your house, but you don't get them everywhere in the ward. It does make some sense. But again, parking is treated And I think Dan could probably speak to this in in Montgomery County because I bet you it's similar there. It's treated as a birthright to a certain degree. It's like, well, my parking privileges have always existed. They're granted to me as a person who lives in this specific place. How dare you take them away from me? And that's tied to America's general car culture. I mean, I think in recent years, there's been more questions raised about whether we should be treating cars and parking and driving as that sort of birthright. And if we shouldn't, what should we do? How should we treat people who want to drive places or need to park places? So that's kind of where the discussion is going to, it's going to start on Friday in, in the city council. And who knows if a bill proceeds? Like I said, this could be surprisingly controversial and elected officials could decide, you know, we don't want to pick a fight about parking right now. You're totally right. Parking can be a real third rail in like local neighborhood politics, whether in DC or in other parts of the region. People naturally feel possessive of the curb space in front of their house or within a few blocks of their house as they feel it's it's for them, right? We have had a similar conversation in Montgomery County with the Purple Line coming in that many of the neighborhoods along it, like mine, that currently don't have parking permits, neighbors want them because they're worried that people are going to park on their block and then go grab the Purple Line. The reasoning, I think, behind restricting RPP to just your advisory neighborhood commission is so that people living in a neighborhood get priority over the parking spaces in the neighborhood, right? That's what they have the permit. That's where they pay the what, $35 a year for their permit. You know, parking permits often come from a very like defensive place, right? The neighborhoods in the very far parts of Ward 4 of the Board of Maryland for a long time did not have RPP because there was no competition for parking spaces, but you know a lot of my neighbors here in Silver Spring like to park their cars on the DC side and then walk across the street because they live there. I used to, and so my understanding is it's really easy to get it on your block. Like you need a majority of neighbors on your block to agree to it. There are some blocks in DC where there are two houses, hence you get a parking permit. <laughs> yeah, to be perfectly frank, I live on a block in Ward Five that is not zoned for residential parking. It's a very residential, suburban feeling place, and there's never been an issue with parking. But I guarantee you, if I walked up and down and talked to my neighbors about getting residential parking permits for us, I would get a lot of pushback because they'd be like, wait, now I have to start paying for this privilege? What is that? This is, again, this is something I was born with and that I should get just by virtue of me being a homeowner. So there's that. I mean, it's always a fight. The one thing I will say is DC has slowly started making changes to residential parking permit that I think are revolutionary, but may fly under the radar. The one was within the last, I think it was a year and a half or so, they actually started raising prices on those parking permits so that it's no longer 35 bucks a year. Now it's gone up and it goes up for each additional car that you have, recognizing that if you're a family of two, 
and you have four cars for some reason, should you be able to park those four cars on that same very valuable curb space and still pay that very low price? And the city council said, no, you should start paying more for that. So I think that they're starting to, to confront the realities that curb is not free. And we always treat it as free. It costs something to someone. How much should residents be paying to make up for that cost is, is ultimately one of the big questions. And there are conversations about what kinds of like car uses should happen on the curb, right? If you want to park a car, you have driveways and parking garages. Like there are ways to store your car off street if you're going to park for a long time. But, you know, we were talking about car sharing just now. Where is your Uber going to drop you off, right? Like the logical place is the curb in front of a building. And so over the past, I'd say like 10 years or so, DC has really prioritized using the curbside for things like that, what they call PUDO, pick up and drop off. And that means fewer spaces for people to park their cars for a long time. But it does mean that people who use cars in different ways, like for delivery or for an Uber or something like that, actually have a, a safer, easier way to access the curb. It is so funny how parking, you know, in what ostensibly is a uh, is a cosmopolitan city, parking is a is such a toxic issue, and I really do think it gets to a, like a core of a generational divide. It's the thing I, I obsess about here that, and I try to I try to look with empathy on you know neighbors, people often older, people who've lived here a long time. The bargain when they got here was you know this is the lifestyle I want. I get to drive, and it's not going to be tricky to park. I'm not going to have to deal with a lot of traffic or crowds, and they feel like that deal got kind of changed on them in favor of building the sort of city that appeals, I mean, appeals to people like me, which is going to be busier, more active, more pedestrian-y, less easy to park in, but more going on, maybe more noise. And I get how they feel because they really do feel like at some point someone changed the terms on them without their permission. And, you know, I think we do in our country have an illusion that we can control our environment. And I always joke, like, you know, I, I paid a lot of money for my house. I consulted the deed and I I don't believe that I own the curb space out front. It'd be nice. Maybe we should change our deeds that way. But that's that's actually not part of the deal legally. And this also speaks to who gets a say in these sorts of debates. Like, generally speaking, in DC and lots of other places, the folks who most often weigh in, have resources, have time, are plugged in and understand that these debates are happening. And so they feel empowered and the and elected officials listen to them, feel like they have to listen to them. But is everybody being heard the same sort of way? Like if I'm just a person who lives in a building in Columbia Heights who doesn't need a car because it's a dense part of town and I can just bike everywhere, am I really connected to this debate? Do I care enough about this debate to participate? Will they hear my voice or not? So folks in my neck of the woods, like again, residential suburban part of Ward 5 or Mike, you're part of Ward 3, they may have very strong opinions about parking and I'm sure they do. And the council is going to could potentially hear those and say, okay, that's the majority view, even though it, it could well not be. I'm not sure I'm with you on that, man. I think that the pro-transit, pro-multimodal, anti-car faction in our politics is incredibly vocal, incredibly articulate, incredibly well-organized with a kind of arrogant know-it-all treatment of like these geezers who don't get it. And, you know, I think a little bit of empathy towards those geezers who don't get it would really go quite a long way. I suspect that's one of the reasons why there's so much like crazy toxicity about an issue that is so like literally close to the curb. That is absolutely true. And I, I cannot wait till the debate as it plays out a little bit more kind of relatedly. The bike lanes along Connecticut Avenue has that perfect 
mix of people like that you just spoke about, you know, folks, transit heavy folks who are just like, this is the right thing to do. This is what we should be doing for the world. And then folks on the other side who are just like, why can't you accept that? Like, I think this is going to be a threat to my livelihood. No. So, I mean, I take your point. I still think that I don't think the transit folks are this kind of big monolithic, powerful lobby that they've been painted out to be. I think the regular voter who goes to city council meetings on a regular basis to testify has just as much, if not more of a voice than lots of these other transit folks. I think one thing to also consider, and we were talking a little bit about like why people feel so strongly about having access to parking is that the way people live in the city has changed too, right? There's sort of two different sort of lives happening in parallel, right? The folks who either live in parts of the city where you have to drive to things or are accustomed to driving to things because they've had to do that for a long time. And folks who have moved here more recently in general, or who don't have access to cars or who physically cannot drive for whatever reason, who experience the city in a very different way. And I wouldn't say that one is necessarily wrong or right. One has a bigger carbon footprint than the other, but it does, I think, contribute to why there's sort of this tension here. Right. I also think, you know, people's life situation changes. And, you know, let's say you live in a neighborhood in Washington that is heavy on singles and childless and empty nesters, and then you have a child. And it turns out that, hey, like all the guitar lessons are in Silver Spring. So next thing you know, you are doing this sort of commute. And I think, again, if Washington wants to be a place that attracts and retains the population, attracts a diverse population, not just in terms of uh, ethnicity, but in terms of like stations of life and so on, I think a little forbearance in that conversation will probably go a long way. But wait, let's speaking of where society is at a go, it's about to be Halloween. And with you gentlemen, I'm not sure if one of you is going to be like a 7,000 series metro car for, for Halloween or something, but I, it is a season when there are always attempts, however lame, to go with topical and DC-centric Halloween costumes. What are you all going to be? I'm going to be a ghost in a Phillies jersey because Bryce Harper is dead to me. <laughs> Bryce Harper was the love of my life and the love of many people here rooted for the Nationals until he left us to go to the Phillies. And since then, he has been dead to me. Oh, that's very good. Oh, see, I can't top that. I mean, I have to, I've got young children. I've got to speak to their, to, to what they believe a good costume is. Plus my kid's school has this annual event where parents are supposed to come in in costume and then read to the kids in costume. So I'm going as Gerald the Elephant from the Elephant and Piggy series. If anybody, and this is a Mo Willem series. It's been around for a long time. So I hope most people recognize me. Worst comes to worst, I'm dressed up like an elephant. I mean, I'm, some, I'm sure someone will look at me and be like, oh, he, this is some sort of statement on republicanism or something along those lines. But it's not. It literally is. I'm just Gerald the Elephant. Yeah, I think the topical costume is pretty hard to pull off. On our uh, newsletter, we had suggestions of being a confusing parking sign being Rusty the Red Panda, a Popeye's rat from the video of that Popeye's on Barracks Row, the Pentagon chicken. So there are there are DC-centric ways to go, I guess. Well, there's also, we had some ideas, the DCS staff kind of put together some ideas in one, and I think this could speak to Dan in Montgomery County. If you get enough friends, you could go as the Montgomery County planning board that just had to resign en masse over some scandals so you could play up that that sort of angle. That being said, most oh, that people- That would give you an excuse to bring booze with you too. Exactly. <laughs> most people probably, you'd have to explain the costume. If you have to explain a costume, you're kind of, you've lost half the battle, I think. Another idea we had internally recently, Deputy Mayor, former Deputy Mayor in D.C., Chris Geldart, had to resign after he got into a bit of a tiff outside of a gym in Boston. And then it was discovered that he didn't actually live in the district. And one of the main reporters that hounded him was Sierra Fox from Fox 5, the local Fox affiliate. 
And she was literally outside his house for like a week. So we thought if you go as a couple, you have one person as Chris Geldart running away from someone else who is essentially Sierra Fox. That could be funny, but you need to be a news consumer to really kind of get that angle. I think you and about 11 people would appreciate that. But if they came to my house in that costume, they would get a lot of candy from me. That's for sure. (laughs) Hey, where do you guys go trick-or-treating? I go on my block. (laughs) I moved into my house November 1st, 2019. So I have never experienced a normal Halloween on my street. So I'm looking forward to sitting out in front with a bowl of candy and to the many kids who live on my block. Well, I'm a trick-or-treat tourist. I will go wherever the trick-or-treating is best. I do it a lot of times we stay close to the neighborhood just because it's convenient. But, you know, we've gone to Lamont Street in Mount Pleasant, which always closes off to do kind of a bit of a block party. We've heard great things about Tacoma Park, which is not too far from where we are in D.C. We've been parts of Petworth, parts of Ward 3. Like my kids have scoured the city streets and knocked on many doors outside their neighborhoods demanding candy. Thankfully, they've never been asked for like their residence, like where they exactly live. There's no residential parking permit for trick or treaters. (laughs) Residential treating permit. Yeah, exactly. So like I said, we go where the candy is good. Yeah, I've always been a, been agnostic about the, whether it's okay to be a trick-or-treat tourist. I, and I feel like there's something kind of awesomely neighborhoody about Halloween. On the other hand, depending on what kind of neighborhood you're in, some neighborhoods are way better in their like footsteps to candy ratio. Like if a neighborhood is is nice and dense, you know, I think Mount Pleasant may be very good on this front because there's there's quite a lot of houses per block. And but you know, you go up to parts of I don't know where you live, Martin, or or Upper Ward Three or something, and you you're hiking for each and every mini pack of Skittles. This is what uh, planners call the trick or treat test. Like, is a our houses close enough together, and can a kid find the door easily uh, to go from house to house? But this is actually a thing in planning. Uh, colloquially. That's awesome. (laughs) There's an academic thing for just about everything. Yeah, no, I live in that sort of neighborhood where you have to walk a little bit further between houses. I mean, they're mostly duplexes and triplexes. So you kind of good bang for your buck. Once you get to one set, you got three, three doors to knock on. But like I said, I will try just about any place in town or the region. I mean, if the Silver Line will take me somewhere in Virginia for good trick or treating, I will take it. Oh, man. When I was a kid, we lived right behind American University and uh, the college kids would trick or treat. And as a like eight-year-old, I realized there was something amiss here. I thought that was just wrong. And the idea that they were out there like competing for our candy just seemed outrageous to me. And one year, my parents ran out of candy. My dad took some of mine and gave it to the college kids. Scandal. Scandal. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, you guys, I hope you have an awesome uh, Halloween where you wind up trick-or-treating. Dan Reed from Greater Washington and Martin Ostermule from WAMU. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. And 
And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend about it, please. We've got a lot of election coverage coming up to help you be informed when you vote. And we're kicking off next week with some spooky stories on Monday. So be sure to tune in for that. I'll talk to you then. 